This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 23. This week, retired U.S. Navy Commander Chuck Sweeney tells us all about the Distinguished Flying Cross, including the society created to protect the ideals represented by the medal and its recipients. Now, a quick caveat before we begin. During the interview, you will hear me, the host, inappropriately suggesting service members earn the DFC. As Chuck reminded me later, Military medals are awarded or received. They are never earned or won. Mia culpa. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapons systems, and, most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. My name is Vincent Aiello. I am your host, and you are in for a special treat on this episode as we discuss the recognition that sometimes follows the expert integration of the aircraft and the weapon systems by the people, specifically the air crew. Today we are talking the Distinguished Flying Cross, a military decoration awarded to any officer or enlisted member of the United States Armed Forces who distinguishes him or herself in support of operations by heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in an aerial flight. And here to help us explore the medal and share how he earned three during the Vietnam conflict is President and CEO of the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, retired U.S. Navy Commander Charles J. Sweeney Jr. Chuck, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thanks, Vincent. It's great to be here and be able to tell some of the stories at the Distinguished Flying Cross. Excellent. Well, we look forward to jumping into that. Now, normally on this podcast, I ask my guests to provide a quick background of where they've been and what they've done. Uh, but knowing your modesty, sir, I fear you may downplay your experiences. So uh, if you permit, I would like to take a stab at this myself. So you're originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and you joined the U.S. Navy and earned the coveted pilot wings of gold in 1962. Uh, you were first assigned to fly the S-2 Tracker anti-submarine warfare aircraft and flew 27 combat support missions in the Tonkin Gulf during Operation Market Time in 1964. After attending the Navy postgraduate school, you transitioned to the A-4 Skyhawk in 1968, making multiple combat deployments to Southeast Asia on the aircraft carriers Bonhomme Richard and Hancock. While deployed in the fall of 1972 as executive officer of Attack Squadron 212, you earned three Distinguished Flying Crosses in the span of one week during particularly intense combat operations. You went on to numerous follow-on assignments before retiring from active duty in 1980 after 22 years of faithful and honorable service. Since then, you've worked in defense contracting and have been active with the Tailhook Association, the Navy League, and Association of Naval Aviation, in addition to your role with the DFC Society. During your military service, you accrued 4,334 flight hours, 757 day and night carrier landings, and 200 combat missions. Your recognition and awards include three Distinguished Flying Crosses, four individual and 19 Strike Flight Air Medals, and two Navy Commendation Medals. You hold a Bachelor's Degree in Physics and Electronics and a Master of Science Degree in Aeronautical Engineering. Phew, did I get all that right? Yes. <laughs> wow. You got it. So you were doing operations of the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964. Had the conflict even started by then? That, that's, we got there right after the conflict started. Wow. We were tracking some Soviet submarines and all of a sudden pulled up stakes, moved down to the Gulf of Tonkin and started doing the market time, looking for junks, moving stuff man, munition, et cetera, down the coast to South Vietnam. Sure, for the insurgency. Now, you identify as a junior. Any relation to Charles W. Sweeney, the pilot who flew the uh, 
bombing mission on Nagasaki in 1945? No relation whatsoever. <laughs> okay. some, some people say, was that you? And I said, no. Well, you're not that, that old, sir. That's what I say, too. <laughs> I, besides that, he was Air Force and a general. Yeah, he ended up going on to be a major general. Okay. Now, simply flying in combat is not enough to earn a DFC. What, what's special about this particular distinction? The Distinguished Flying Cross is the highest aviation award, and it's the fourth highest medal for valor. Uh, you have the Medal of Honor, you have the Navy Cross, you have the Silver Star, and then you have the DFC. It's for doing things that are exceptional, uh, above and beyond, not above and beyond as in the Medal of Honor, but doing something that's, they say, heroic. I just think it's what we're trained to do, and most of us feel the same way. We were just doing our job when we were awarded this. Well, recipients of this are known for their modesty. So now this is in precedence above a bronze star and even the Purple Heart. Is that correct? That's correct. So for the listeners, when you see someone wearing uh, medals or ribbons at a ceremony, let's say in their uniform, the order of each one of those is important. One has a higher distinction than the other. Of course, the Medal of Honor being the highest, and I don't think, do we even wear that? Or Not we, but those who get it. Is that around the neck, I believe? That's around the neck. Right, yes. okay. But then, like you said, the Navy Cross and some of the others will be higher, and some of the lower campaign ribbons and various things, good conduct will be uh, down at the bottom of that order of precedence. Okay. Now, the first recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal was Charles A. Lindbergh, if my research is correct. He was then a captain in the Army Reserve, and it was awarded in recognition of his 1927 transatlantic crossing that I believe listeners should be familiar with in the aircraft known as the Spirit of St. Louis. Uh, who are some other notable recipients the listeners might recognize, recipients of the DFC? Some of the other ones are President Bush 41, who received his in World War II, Jim Lovell, Apollo 13, uh, Jimmy Doolittle, but not for the Doolittle raid. Every pilot and air crew on that raid received a DFC except for him. He received the Medal of Honor, but he had received two DFCs prior to that for wow. pre-World War II. Anyway. Okay, excellent. And... Coast Guard members get it for, like, Katrina. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of people that were okay. awarded the DFC. So some of the response air crew in Hurricane Katrina, I believe that was 2005, were awarded the DFC. Yes. Wow, outstanding. Okay, well, my research suggests that Senator McCain, also a DFC recipient, uh, George McGovern, former presidential candidate, uh, Clark Gable, actor from Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah. and Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> No kidding. That's interesting. Uh, General Chuck Yeager, uh, for those of us who grew up in Southern California, Cal Worthington used to see his car sales commercials. Yes. I wonder, that must have been from World War II, I would that guess. That was World War II. Okay. I tried recruiting him a couple times, never never got through to Re him. But recruiting into, into the society? society? Okay. Excellent. Well, we'll talk in a moment about the society and, and what it does, its outreach programs and whatnot. Um, and civilians have even been awarded the DFC, as I understand. Looks like Glenn Curtis, uh, aircraft designer, and Amelia Earhart. Right. They eventually stopped. Uh, Congress passed a law saying no longer would civilians be awarded it. But they didn't stick to that and... Eventually, the, the Wright brothers were also awarded, right. one, one of them posthumously. Wow. But several of them were awarded long after they said no more civilians. But there haven't been any for years. For uh, civilians? For civilians. But they still are awarded today, right, during recent combat operations? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there were some just last year, a couple of A's, several A-10 pilots uh, were awarded the DFC. And there, there are a number of them. Most of them are like A-10s or helicopters, rescue helicopters in general. And again, it's not just for, I mean, they might argue the pilots would like you just did, that they were doing their jobs, but it, there's something usually a little more 
not elaborate, but I can't think of a word to, you know, there, there's something more going on. Like in the case of the A-10 pilots, they were credited with saving the lives of 50 American soldiers on the ground. Right. right. So there's something more that goes into a Distinguished Flying Cross award. Absolutely. Do you know how many have been awarded over the life of the medal? Nobody knows. The really? uh, services did not keep very good records. Uh, it's estimated, especially with World War II, maybe 100,000 or 200,000. Wow. They just don't know. Uh, in World War II, the, the bomber crews, B-17 crews, if they completed 25 missions, which was not very likely, right. the whole crew was awarded a DFC. And that you're talking about 10 people. And you're talking about hundreds of uh, crews that were awarded that. And in that case, that wasn't for something special, although I think it was special that they could get through 25 missions. Right. Now, the movie Memphis Bell captures that story a little bit for that yes. particular crew. Yeah. Okay. So in that case, survival was enough when survival was against the odds in and of itself. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's been changed. It's now, it, it was originally designed for individual actions. And it was, the ironic part is, it was originally designed to, and came into being in 1926, and it was designed for World War I pilots. And... Up until recently, there were no World War One pilots that were awarded one, and we they just recently last year one was awarded for an Army uh, pilot in World War One, posthumously, of course. So presented to his, his family. Family, sure. Yes. Wow. Yes. And that's still an honor, I would hope, for that family to know that oh, their it was. ancestor but, displayed but the we, bravery. And we had somebody was at the ceremony, and uh, he was brought in posthumously into the DFC Society. That's cool. Now, what is the mission of the DFC Society, and what are some of its outreach programs? We're primarily trying to educate the public and primarily the youth of America that people can overcome tremendous obstacles given the training and the go-getting to face the obstacles and accomplish extraordinary things. And the youth doesn't understand that. And uh, we're, we're trying to reach out to them. We're working on trying to get a documentary out. We have one, luckily KPPS did one, recently uh, here in San Diego that four of us are in, and that gets the message across. I just recently talked to the uh, Aviation Club of the NROTC unit at uh, USD. I'm scheduled to talk to the NJROTC uh, unit at Westview High School uh, in two weeks. So it, it's just trying to educate the the youth primarily. Okay. And celebrate, of course, the accomplishments and the success of the recipients. Yeah. Uh, just to expand on USD, as you and I understand it, as University of San Diego. San Diego. And then we've had previous episodes on the Fighter Pilot Podcast talking about Ascension Program. So the listener is familiar with NROTC, but the junior and Navy junior ROTC is for the high school. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Outstanding. Now, I said in your quick bio that you earned three DFCs in the span of one week. The first was as the on-scene commander of a downed fellow aviator, just made it off the coast of Vietnam. I understand the weather was deteriorating, the light was decreasing. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes. Uh, actually, I'd like backtrack just a tad. Sure. I uh, was sent out there. I was on shore duty. And the XO of the squadron was killed, a VA-212. And 13 days after he was killed, I was on my way out to replace him. Oh, uh, so you were on shore duty in I the States, in, in not the due sta to rotate to combat, 
And 13 days later, you're in combat. In combat. I was pulled off shore duty a year and a half early. Wow. Were you married at the time? Uh, Yes, married. Four children. Goodness. So uh, I was the lucky guy. I was the only one that (laughs) could make it. So I went out there, and I knew everybody in the air wing, or most of them, uh, the fighter pilots I knew, and the attack pilots I had a lot of them I had trained, a lot of them I had served with. So this was a road recce, which means we were looking for trucks or anything that was moving. South, to, probably. Uh, but this was in North Vietnam. Right, so trucks moving Could south? Move south, yep. yes. Okay. And I was the division lead, which means I was uh, responsible for four airplanes, but we broke off separately the one section, they made runs on the truck, found some trucks, but they got hit on the third run. He managed to get the plane out over the water before he ejected, and I became the on-scene commander and was responsible for getting a hold of the helos, uh, assigning aircraft to escort the helo, assign aircraft to go after the AAA sites that were around and uh, things like that. And we managed to get him out and kept him out of the Hanoi Hilton. It was late in the day. Uh, there was, had been a storm which kept the small boats ashore, which was a plus, but it was a minus because the waves were pushing him toward the beach. Oh, dear. And uh, basically... It worked out well, and one of the AAA sites, I got a little too close uh, in one of my circles, and they started popping at me, and I thought, well, I still had six bombs, and I thought, I'll take care of them later, And I, which I did, probably shouldn't have, but I didn't want to just jettison the bombs, but as I was getting ready to roll in, a voice came up over guard, it sounded like God. It said, uh, Flying Eagle 312, this is Jehovah. Report all chicks' feet wet. Well, Jehovah was the personal call sign of the Admiral. Oh, wow. And I had to think, do I want to go in and drop the bombs? Technically, I should have just stopped and come back and reported everybody was safe. But uh, I decided to, he can't see me, so I rolled in, dropped the bombs, got some secondaries, and actually saw the gun barrel fly up in the air. Wow. Not recommend it. And <laughs> I, I tell people, don't do not do this just because I did it. I got away with it. But uh, And then I reported all chicks' feet wet, which meant everybody was safe. And, uh, and we got them back. That's an amazing story. Recently on this podcast, we had uh, Bill Willie D. Driscoll on the show, and he told his story on May 10th, just a few months before this, of 1972, when he was coming feet wet and was hit by a surface air missile, and he was the one in the water while the rescue was going on around him. So now we've had different rescue, but similar story told from the sky point of view. So I appreciate that. And so that, I didn't realize, so that was one of the four that you had let out there was the fellow in the water. Yes, he was okay. He was one of the four. And, and so, so you got him back aboard the ship that it, night? When is he okay well, to go he, again? He, he ended up spending the night on the uh, destroyer, and then he came back to the carrier the next day. But uh, he said he didn't like the brandy that they provided <laughs> on the destroyer. So. Uh, off the record, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, flight surgeons were authorized if to you, do that. We were, had been uh, rescued. Okay. So, all right. It was legal. Okay. Now, did he go on to fly again on that deployment? Oh, yes. Well, he came back to the to the ship the next day, and he wasn't on the flight schedule that day, but the day after that he was. Wow. And he stayed in and uh, eventually became a captain. He eventually flew the Prowlers. Oh, okay. So, the EA-6B? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Did you keep in touch with him after that, or was it... it- well, I... Got in touch with everybody because about eight years ago, we were going down to Pensacola for our convention. Okay. And my roommate, when I was going through flight training, was 
the magazine editor for the uh, museum magazine, he said, would you do a story about this rescue? And I said, sure. And he said, but I want it from the helicopter viewpoint, not just your 12,000-foot viewpoint. And I said, well, Earl, that sounds good, but uh, how am I going to do that? You know, he said, well, don't you know the names of the people? I said, I probably have them written down, but you got to realize this was 30-some years ago. <laughs> he said, well, I'll see if I can get you the names. By the time I got back from Pensacola, I had all the names of everybody and talked to them all. No kidding. Yeah, the, the pilot and the co-pilot of the Hilo, the, the three crew members. The pilot of the Hilo and the swimmer both were awarded DFCs. The oh. swimmer, really, I mean, his probably should be higher. Because should, of the swells were so large that day? The swells and a mile and a half offshore North Vietnam True. to jump in the water and expect the Hilo to come back around and mm-hmm. pick you up. Meanwhile, as you said, the waves we're, were pushing, we're pushing you towards shore. shore. Yeah, yeah. It, it was interesting talking to them all. Oh, I'm sure. So... Now, your second DFC was earned, again, as the lead of a division of A-4s. Your flight attacked a railroad yard and transportation hub in North Vietnam. Uh, I Mm -hmm. read that you encountered significant surface-to-air opposition, both on the way in and on the way out. Backtrack. That was my third. Oh, my apologies. Okay, tell us about the second one. Second (laughs) one was I was leading what was called an alpha strike uh, of a target in North Vietnam, but it was way up. Uh, on the panhandle, and it was fairly close to China. Oh. And we were a little bit worried about that. But it was the first time I physically led an Alpha strike, which is basically around 35, 40 aircraft hitting one specific target and had to do the planning of it, but also lead it. The weather changed a little bit. Uh, We had to change our run-in heading a little bit. Uh, some MiGs came up, but they didn't... They they got airborne, but didn't hit us. The F-8 pilots were all excited. They they were thought, we've got a chance, and then the MiGs went, I think, realized that they were F-8s and decided maybe they weren't going to mess with them and went <laughs> and landed. And we... A little bit, some AAA, but there weren't any SAMs up in that area. Okay. So um, that was a successful mission. We got a lot of good hits. And then the next day was when led a division of four airplanes, A-4s, toward, it was on the outskirts of Hanoi. And we knew there'd be a lot more uh, opposition there. as we were getting ready to make a right turn, a SAM came up, and it had my name on it, or my division's name <laughs> on it. And we got the signals that they were launching it and saw it launched. And back then, they were SA-2s, and what you had to do was, when you knew it was pointing at you, tracking you, you had to do a barrel roll around it, but you didn't want to do it too early, and you had to do it when it looked like a flying telephone pole. And I kept asking for a better definition, being an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you define it better than that? And everybody said, trust us. You'll know it when you see it. And guess what? I knew it, and we did the barrel roll. The trouble was I had to do the barrel roll to the left because that's the direction the SAM was coming from. And just as that strike group was making their right-hand turn, so by the time we got out of the maneuver and the SAM went up over us, and I don't know whether it exploded up in the air or just came back down. We lost track of it and didn't care. But uh, then I had to catch up to the strike group. And then as we got closer to the... Target area was on the outskirts of Hanoi. A couple more SAMs came up, but didn't even really affect our whole strike group. And uh, got ready to roll in and realized that the section that I was uh, supposed to hit 
was underwater, so I had to pick another target that was in that same general vicinity and found a, a train that was a little bit underwater, but not completely, and we hit that and got some secondaries. A t- underwater train? I mean, was it I, I mean, it was... It, 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 the area was pretty flooded. Okay, so monsoon season? Monsoon or? season, Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So they just kind of live through that if they can, and then when it dries out, they pick back up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, what's the risk in being separated from the strike group? I mean, I think anyone who watches National Geographic knows that as soon as the one water buffalo gets separated from the herd, the lions have their way. So yeah. same idea? Well, it, it was the same problem because the fighters were all at a little higher altitude than the attack birds, but they were protecting the whole strike, but we weren't part of the strike. So if, any, if the MiGs had come after us, they, they would have picked us out until we got under the cover of the, uh, of of your the fighters. fighters. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that was the worry a little bit, but uh, we just poured the coals to it and <laughs> caught up as quick as we could and, and kind of cut the corner to... Uh, because they end, ended up having to make a left turn to go into the target area. Oh, so you were so able to cut the corner. Cut, cut across. Sure. So that was another, like I say, that was three in, in a week. Wow. I was, wasn't bored that week. No, I would say not. And essentially you didn't know until later what had happened. I mean, that you were awarded. You're keyed up for the yeah, game, so yeah. you're not thinking too much about No, right. you, you don't go in thinking... I'm, I'm going to go get a DFC. No. You, you never do. No. You just circumstances. And uh, actually, for a long time, I thought I had four in that week because, and I thought I had lost the paperwork for the first one because I, I never could find it. So <laughs> when I joined the DFC Society, I finally said, I got to find this. So I sent it off to St. Louis for my records. Mm-hmm. And it came back and it only had the three citations. And I finally started looking at some of the individual air metal citations. And I realized one of my DFCs got downgraded to individual air metal because the three of the air metals, individual air metals, were signed by the two star admiral and one was signed by the four star. So Somebody at the staff seemed to think, one, either I didn't deserve it for that or that maybe four in a week was too much. I don't know which. <laughs> it takes nothing away from your bravery and heroics, Chuck, so yeah. we want to thank you on behalf of all my listeners for that. Just for fun, though, do you happen to know, is there someone who has, what, what's the highest number of DFCs someone has? As far as we know, the highest is 13. Wow. One of them was uh, an Air Force pilot, World War II, and Korea, who had 13. Over the span of those two conflicts? Over the two conflicts. And then the other one was my CO, my commanding officer of VA-212. Really? Duke Peacher. He was a commander at the time, and he was awarded 13. And I think that was all in that same period of time all in 72 1972 yeah so he averaged more than one a month yes goodness of course well, you weren't well, deployed well, he, because the cruise was right. usually six that's six what months, i was about to so, say so it's two a month wow. so. and the co the sister squadron was stan arthur who eventually made four stars he had 11 of them he was wow. awarded 11 of them well, 1, 11, 13, I, they're all heroes to me. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, Chuck, the, uh, the A-4 is a small, single-engine aircraft. It's kind of a venerable aircraft people still think fondly of. What was it like to fly what they call the scooter? It was an outstanding airplane. We always said, you didn't climb into that airplane. You put that airplane on you. It was <laughs> like small. The, like the flight gear. You yeah, strapped it on. You strapped it on. It, it was The cockpit was small. Relatively so. You you couldn't see any of the switches along the the panels on the side because your arms were in the way. You had to know where the switches were, uh, the setting for them. It was the only, at that time, the only Navy carrier plane that didn't fold its wings. It was that small. It didn't need to. didn't need to. <laughs> and uh, which 
also was a big plus because it made a smaller target. The, for uh, the enemy gunners? For the, for the gunners. Mm-hmm. And it was simple, but it could take a lot of, lot of hits. Uh, there were, I saw one. I, I wasn't there when it happened, but uh, pictures of one where they took a hit in the wing, which is where the, the fuel was stored, and they had a fly on the, the tanker plugged in all the way to the meatball on the carrier, and he landed. And it, so it saved him, brought him back, and he could stand up in the hole that was in the wing. It was oh, that, that big. And I'd mentioned Stan Arthur. He got hit once with a SAM, and they said they got up to 500 holes in his plane. And they counted 500? 500. Wow. And, <laughs> and he landed that at Da Nang, and it flamed out right before he landed. but uh, And he was able to glide it in? Glide it That's in. That's amazing. Was, yeah. So aircraft on a carrier will fold their wings so they can park more aircraft in a smaller space. space. And your exactly. wings were small enough that someone decided you didn't have to do that. Yeah. And then when you said the word meatball, that is slang that you and I understand for the light <laughs> reference system that pilots use to land on board the carrier. So this particular aircraft was streaming fuel, probably taking it in during the tanking. Okay. As quickly as it was streaming out. So the tanker pilot broke away right as he was on that light reference system to land, what, seconds later on the carrier? Seconds later. Uh, (laughs) That's also some bravery. Uh, As the nomenclature suggests, the Skyhawk was used mainly in the attack role over Vietnam. What were some typical loadouts for your strike missions? Most of ours were, we would carry six 500-pound bombs. Uh, But on that cruise... We were the walleye squadron, so we had these initial smart weapons. Mm-hmm. They were they were glide bombs, but they had a TV, a camera in them, and we had a little receiver in the cockpit, and you could lock onto a target. And it was the first of the smart bombs. If you locked onto a window, it would fly right through that window. Wow. Trouble was to make sure you... You got a good lock on and all. You had a tendency to get a little lower than we really liked going. <laughs> but, uh, and then Sister Squadron BA-55 had the Shrike, which was the anti-radiation uh, missile. Predecessor to the Harm, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, 164, which was Stan Arthur Squadron, had the... Laser-guided bombs. They they were 500-pound bombs, but they had uh, special fins on them and a laser tracker in the nose. But somebody had to laze it. Well, we also had a two-seat A4 with us, and the guy in the back of the TA4 would laze the target, and then everybody else would toss their bombs into, quote, the basket. And it it worked well, but uh, so he had a pod that would allow him to send a laser beam it, that it, is pulsed to a certain code uh, that the bombs would know to seek see. and home in on, essentially. Yes, and all go to the target. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah, it, it wasn't a pod; it was a handheld laser. Oh, it was a handheld. Oh gosh, <laughs> and, yeah, it was a guy in the back. So did he have was, to stay in like an orbit, like a left and, or right and, hand turn? Yeah. Wow. Actually, even did that over the Thanwell Bridge. Goodness. Yeah. So. That that took big set. Is he in your society? <laughs> no, they 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 would get guys. They actually sometimes had fighter pilots that wanted to go up and do that. Really, I, I have no idea why. <laughs> that didn't sound like a good thing to me. No, but, uh, I would say not. Especially loitering fairly predictably right, over, over enemy territory. territory. Yeah, surface yeah. air missiles or AAA come up flat, yeah. and you, you've got problems. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you ever carry any air-to-air weapons? No, uh, we could, but uh, you know we always had the the fighters with us, and mm-hmm. they they were there to protect us. But uh, the one cruise when I was flying the S twos, we had Marine A fours with us that actually had the sidewinders, and they they were up as air-to-air uh, missions 
for to protect the the carrier, which was kind of strange. Well, it is, except that for anyone who's awareness, if you will, of the A4 from the Vietnam on, Vietnam conflict on, you think of it as an aggressor aircraft, as an air-to-air. In fact, they're still flying these today, yes, 62 I, years later. I know. And so I think of it in my youth, relatively, as an air-to-air aggressor, and yet mostly operationally it was all used for attack. Attack, yeah. And they, there were more A4s lost in Vietnam than any other Navy aircraft. But the attrition rate was low because they were the workhorse. I mean, they, they just lost a lot of them, but loss per mission was relatively low in comparison to some of the others. <laughs> and the, the ironic part was it was originally designed as an atomic bomber, and that, that was the reason for the tall landing gear, mm. was so that they could put the big nuclear bomb underneath of it. And the idea was what? It would come in super low and fast and do some sort of lob and try to get out of there in time? Oh, yeah, yeah. We practiced that. Even during Vietnam, we were practicing that. Wow. It, uh, you know, it was sort of a, wasn't a, a kamikaze, but it was sort of a last ditch if you were going in there. There you, wasn't certainty that you, you were you coming were, back? You weren't sure you were going to get back, and uh, but you would fly very low mm-hmm. and then loft it, and then then you'd cl- get out, but then you'd climb to, up to 35,000 feet, and then hopefully there'll be an aircraft carrier for you to come back to. <laughs> but uh, we didn't think that was going to happen either. Yeah. So it was interesting time. I would days. say. Are you familiar with the name Dick Stratton? Yes. Yeah. I want to tell you a quick story. So when I was at Top Gun... I used to be involved with scheduling the guest speaker for every class. They used to call it the MIG killer debrief, but then they turned it into the combat speaker. And I had at the time, and still do, a book called And Kill MIGs. And it's a compilation of stories of different, you know, air-to-air kills. And as I would coordinate for all these speakers to show up, I realized that... Several of them were in this book, their stories were. So I started getting each of their autograph when they would show up. I'd say, hey, you know, thanks for being here. By the way, do you mind to sign this? Well, I asked Dick Stratton, <laughs> because he came and spoke to sign my book. And where he saw that other signatures had put, you know, seven guns kills in the case of one gentleman from Israel. Um, you know, so many kills from Willie D and, and Duke. And he, he wrote down one kill myself. And (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong, but he was flying an A4 and he was carrying Zuni rockets, which you didn't say that your squadron carried. And do you know what happened next? I believe he fired some Zunis and one of them exploded in front of his aircraft and fodded his only engine and he ended up shooting himself down. (laughs) That's a true story. And there's another true story. Do you know T.R. Schwartz? I know the name. I'm not sure why I would, though. What, what was... TR shot down a MiG with a Zuni rocket from an A-4. That's probably why. Yeah. and he, I think he, he was in that book. He's he's always up at... Uh, he, he lives here in San Diego. Okay. He's always up at Tailhook. He, he comes to a lot of the Tailhook uh, functions. Comes to some of them. Not, okay. Not, not so many. Well, you'll have to introduce me next time we're there together, Chuck. Yeah. Now, yeah. a Zuni rocket is an unguided projectile, like a bottle rocket, essentially. It is. How on earth did he, I guess we'll have to see if I can get him on the show, but <laughs> how did he pull that off? He had the, the rockets uh, because he was a flak suppressor. He was to take out the, the, the guns, mm-hmm. and this MiG jumped him, and TR was able to outmaneuver him and get the MiG in front of him, <laughs> and he thought, why not? I'll fire the Zuni and hit perfectly. First try? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Tell me he's in your society, Chuck. No, I haven't been able what? to get him in. He, oh, okay. He, he, he has. He has a DFC. Okay. But, but uh, so if you're awarded a DFC, does it mean you're automatically in a society? This is like a no. group that you join. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, <laughs> you have to sign up. Some people. Uh, it takes a while. Sure. Uh, Jim Lovell was the one that convinced me to become a tailhawk pilot. I didn't get into that part of the story, but when I first came in the Navy, I 
joined the Navy to see the world. I was working as an engineer, and they brought me in as an aeronautical engineer, and they sent me to Pax River. And I thought, wait a second, I'm working in College Park, Maryland, and I'm going to Patuxent River, Maryland, 60 miles or 70 miles down the road. That's not seeing the world. <laughs> three years and I'll be out. Well, it didn't work out that way. I started getting a little interested in flying, and then Jim Lovell started taking me up for individual flights, and then he said, uh, okay, you're thinking about going through flight training. You don't want to become just a Navy pilot. You want to become a tailhawk pilot. I said, yeah, Jim, that sounds right to me. I'll go do that. <laughs> and uh, I eventually got him to join the DFC Society many years ago. Sure. But, uh, the last time I saw him, I, I, I told him, I said, I always thank you most of the time for you know, convincing me to become a tailhawk pilot. I said, oh, except those 192 night traps. And then I said, how did I ever let him get me into the, doing this? The, was I the only one those never got easier for? Did they ever get easier for you? No. <laughs> Good. No, no. They never did. That is one thing I don't miss. I'd go out if they'd let me and go do some day landings, but the night ones, forget it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chuck, I believe we have covered just about everything. Is there anything else about the DFC, the medal, or the society you'd like to share with my listeners? Well, we uh, we had our convention in uh, September in Dallas, and the the theme of it was the heroic women of the DFC. Ah. Right now, we have nine living women recipients of the DFC. There are more, but these are nine that joined the DFC Society. Six of them were there in uh, in Dallas, and it was great. I had met two of them prior to that. The other four, it was the first time I had met them, but I had recruited them all. But uh, they're just, I would have flown combat with any of them. Man, woman, black, yeah, white, right. doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's right. too bad the rest of society isn't more like this because... It's about capability, bravery, right. honor. Exactly. And I'm so exactly. glad that the DFC Society still joins to celebrate that and pass it on to the next generation, as that, you that's stated. That's what we're, we're trying to do. Too. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, the website is dfcsociety.org. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Now, before we go, we have a tradition here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast to explain call signs. Now, I don't even know. Do you have a call sign, Chuck? No, I don't really? have one. It, Back in those days, most of the attack pilots did not. The fighter pilots all did. Uh, I'm not sure why that was true. A couple of the attack guys, if they fouled up something, they they <laughs> would get one of them in particular was his was Nordo, which meant Nordo is a word meaning no radio, and uh, he got that because he a couple times claimed he was had no radio two of the times he had disconnected his <laughs> helmet so he was it was kind of more of a dilbert <laughs> but uh no i i never had one no kidding no was there ever one you wished you would have had no. Because you got to be careful with that. They'll give you the exact opposite, right? So if you want to be Jaws, they'll give you Minnow or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and some of them go with their, like, Admiral Swift. Not so. Of course. Not yes. so. We did have an episode on call signs, so our listeners are aware of anyone who's swift or wise or strong. Well, yes, yes. Not so. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, Chuck... I want to thank you on behalf of the listeners and myself for your time, for your bravery, for your honor, and for everything you do for the DFC Society, because that is helping to explain and promote good old-fashioned values of service before self and sacrifice. And you embody that. You promote it. So we just want to thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. And thank you for what you continue to do uh, day in and day out. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Chuck. And unless you have anything else, I think we can wrap it up. Well, I enjoyed it. I, I really, I, I like talking about things. But, Excellent. Uh, well, we enjoyed listening. So thanks. Okay. Thank you. 
All right, well, was that awesome or what? Chuck Sweeney is an amazing guy. He's one of our local hometown heroes around here on Coronado. Shows up at all the Veterans Day events and Memorial Day events, and we see him at various change of command functions and whatnot. So, Chuck, thanks again. Great having you on the show, and I hope everyone enjoyed what you had to say. I'm sure they did. And uh, just, again, our thanks to you uh, for your service and for taking the time to explain all about the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Society. So Chuck and I recorded that some months ago. I think it was before we did the Carrier Series and a few others. So if you heard me refer to other subjects and explain things that since have become a little more obvious, that's because I believe we met back in March for that. So anyway, no big deal. Well, hello, everyone. How's it going? We jumped right into that interview, so I didn't have a chance to say hello. Hope the summer is still going well for you. We're just a couple weeks here in the Aiello household from going back to school. Kids aren't too excited about that, but that's the way it goes. And let's see what's going on in our world. We launched that new website back on July 31st, and it's doing really well. Have had a lot of positive feedback, seen a lot of different clicks and various things. We've got some metrics that tell us what's good and what's not looked at as much. So we're going to continue to tweak the website. And if you have feedback for us, positive is great, but constructive is really what we're looking for. How you could use it better or enjoy it more, then let us know. I told you previously that I would explain a little more on the Volatus wine. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But again, that is a friend of mine who I went through flight school with and was at Top Gun with. And then he went back to Top Gun a couple years later and then got out and we still keep in touch. And I'm hoping to see him at the annual Tailhook convention coming up in September. And if so, we will record a quick short where he can talk about his wines and, uh, you know, let you know what he's doing in that regard. But Hal actually provided the wine for my retirement ceremony celebration a year and a half ago, and it was fantastic wine, and it ships, as it says on the website, to 38 states. So if you're one of those, then you can get his wine right to your door, and I do really recommend the Volatis wine. Uh, You know, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about, and that is last episode when I was talking about someone had asked me what it felt like to drop bombs and shoot somebody down, and I mentioned... I guess it was Mongo, and I think I said Viper a couple times, and I really should have said Willie D, because Viper didn't talk as much about it as Willie D did. But, you know, all of those guys have had that experience, but it was Mongo and Willie D who spoke more about it on the podcast. All right, well, we have a little time for listener questions, so let's start this week with an email. This is from John McGinnis, not sure where he's from. But he says, whenever you see a pilot walking out to his plane, he always seems to be carrying a flight bag for some reason. So what is in the flight bag? Your lunch? Some snacks? How about a newspaper? Well, John, the helmet bag is required on every flight, at least it is in the Navy. And in there, I generally kept my pocket checklist for normal procedures and then an emergency procedure checklist as well. Then you typically have whatever recording media you might need for that particular airplane. We talked about that on episode seven with Grand. And then you might also have a removable media of some sort. Think of a thumb drive that plugs into the airplane. And the way that works is you can program waypoints and frequencies and a few other things before you get in the airplane. And it saves you time when you're sitting on deck. You don't have to load everything right into the airplane. You can do it ahead of time in your pre-flight planning and plug it in and it all transfers for you. Other things I used to carry in there was water, earplugs, sunglasses, a bandana to wipe displays or wipe my forehead if I got sweaty. And then, yes, to your point, on longer missions over Iraq, for example, I would pack a couple peanut butter jelly sandwiches down in the galley beforehand, maybe a couple Gatorades or something, and I would take those along. And then, as we talked about on a previous listener question segment, by the end of the flight, you may have less food, but you might have a few piddle packs that have been used in your bag as well. And then everything comes out with you and you dispose of things as they need to, whether it's overboard for the piddle packs or into the safe for the removable media, etc. All right, next, let's go to a phone call. Hey, Jello, my name is Carson Hawkins. I'm calling you from Atlanta, Georgia. And I would like to, uh, before I get to the question, I'd just like to say thank you so much for uh, the work you put in and, you know, producing these podcasts. This is just an absolute goldmine for an aspiring fighter pilot, and I guess more specifically, an aspiring naval aviator such as myself. You know, I think I can speak on behalf of all your listeners when I say, you know, this is just absolutely remarkable. But, uh, you know, thanks again. Um, Now with the question, uh, the one that I have for you is, 
what was it like trapping on the carrier for the first time? I'm sure that feeling will stick with anybody. So, um, you know, what was it like trapping on the carrier? I just, you know, I was wondering. I'm, I'm actually an instrument-rated private pilot myself, and, you know, I'll never forget my first solo, but I'm sure trapping on a carrier was just, you know, unbeatable. So uh, thanks again for all you do, and uh, keep up the excellent work. I will definitely be listening as far as it can go. So thanks again, Jella. Great question, Carson. You know, I remember that like it was yesterday, but it was July 1995. So what is that, 23 years ago? And it was a mix of terror, excitement, hesitation. Gosh, I'm not great with English language, but there's a whole bunch more, all these different emotions that go through you when you're doing that. Because at that moment, it is the culmination of weeks, months, and years of preparation. You know, you're always doing, as we talked about during a previous episode, you're always doing the practice landings on any flight when you come back and land at the field. But for the last couple months before you go to the ship, that's all you're doing. You're doing simulators, you're doing briefs, you're doing, you know, self-study. And then you go out and do landing after landing after landing at the field with the landing signal officers and they're helping you. But you just know it's nothing like what it will be when you get out there. And sure enough, when you do get out there, for me, it was right here off the coast of Southern California on the Carl Vinson in a TA-4J Skyhawk. And you will have a flight lead in an A-4, an instructor who will bring three students in on his wing and each of you is solo and he breaks and he comes around I don't remember if he went off to hold or landed or touch and go or whatever he did but you're coming down and you're thinking oh my gosh this is it this is what we've been training to do forever and you have to discipline yourself to look at all the numbers you expect to see your beam distance the time that you turn everything Farva talked about in our day landing segment in episode 13 I believe it was and so as you come around it's just, again, I, I don't know what else to say. It's just crazy. You're like, am I about to do this really? But you don't have time to think about it because you're trying to do the procedures and you're trying to process what you're seeing because the light is the same and the little bit of the carrier deck is like it is painted on the runway, but that's about it. Everything else is different. And so I want to say when I first came down, I think I might have been too close to the guy in front of me. And so I went around, and then the second time, I was too close to the ship, so by the time I turned, I overshot and had to go up the starboard side, which was embarrassing. And the first time I finally trapped, I came around and just tried to make sense out of the ball and everything else. And my very first trap in my career was on the one wire. I'm not proud of that, but that's what it was. And so I wasn't passing anything up, and I came screeching to a halt, and I probably thought, holy cow, what just happened? And I'm sure they were trying to get my attention and raise the hook and get me out of the way so the guy behind me could come around. And yeah, by that first day, I want to say I did six or seven. By day two, I felt like an expert. And in the end of my carrier qualification, my initial, I had one one wire, two two wires, three three wires, and four four wires, including one where the LSO had a chance to say bolt or bolt. You know, he got halfway through the second one, and somehow I caught the four wire on the fly by the grace of God. And so I never uh, boltered at first, which was amazing. And then, you know, years later, not years, but a year later, when I came out in the F-18 at night for the first time, I had, I think, one or two night bolters during my initial CQ. And of course, they had some talking to me about that. But as long as you're mostly safe and they can correct you, then it works out pretty well. But yes, it is memorable. And that's not something I want to experience again from being new. But Certainly, as I've said before, if I could go back out in the daytime with enough training, yeah, I think I would. That'd be fun. Nighttime, forget about it. All right, next question. Mike Jochner from Germany. Did you ever have to use, quote, go pills or no-go pills? When listening to you and your guests, I always get the impression that life aboard the carrier is hard, but well-regulated and structured, parentheses, sleeping hours, etc. However, I am sure it really isn't, especially during attack missions, where many crew members are probably sleep-deprived and generally under a lot of pressure. So, Mike, I never had to use go or no-go pills, thankfully, but I was never there during particularly intense 
missions like right after 9-11. I heard those fellows did, and done correctly, it worked. You could have the go pills, which is just a stimulant when it's time to go fly. And when you get home, you might be all keyed up and you need a sleep aid. And you take that and then right back you go the next day with a go pill, possibly. I heard most everyone did okay with them. I'm sure there were some people that struggled after it was over to wake up or go to sleep. And plenty of people, you know, use coffee and other sleeping aids to help themselves in regular life. So I assume a lot of those guys did as well. But no, I was never in any situation where I needed to use any kind of go or no-go pills. And I'm thankful for that because I would rather not have to medicate myself like that if not necessary. All right, a question from Duncan. Not sure where Duncan's from. He says, did you ever meet Carol... Lex Lafon. Lex is his call sign. He was in the Navy for 26 years and reached the rank of captain. He flew F-A-18s his whole career, except when he was at Top Gun. Due to the similarities in your careers, what was the chance that you ever came across him? If you were close, do you have any good Lex stories? So, you know what, Duncan, I do not remember meeting Lex. I imagine our paths crossed somewhere. I'm sure we were in the same building, maybe even the same missions, same events at some point. But the sad thing is, I do not recall, but he has an excellent reputation, not only for being a fantastic pilot, but also for a blog that he had, and then tragically also for dying years later as a civilian pilot up in Fallon. And my first awareness of him as far as the name was when I got back to Fallon in 2013, he had died the year before. And so on the one year anniversary, I had just gotten there and they were dedicating a plaque at the location where he perished. And I went out to do that and talk to other people and, and just became aware at that point. And I think a lot of people were aware of him prior to that, but for whatever reason, I was not. So I'm not totally sure if our paths ever crossed or not. All right, well, we have time for one more quick question. This one comes from Simon in Newcastle, United Kingdom. He says, was there ever a time when flying jets became routine and repetitive, or were you always excited to get into the air? You know, Simon, I'd like to be able to tell you that I was always excited. And looking back, I certainly remember those more than the others. But I'm pretty sure there were times, whether it was the middle of deployment on some mission that you didn't particularly care too much about, or maybe even when you're home and you just had to go do something to check an airplane or you know, move an airplane somewhere. I'm sure it became routine and repetitive. I don't remember it that way, but, you know, anything in life, I think, gets to a point where you lose the newness of it, you lose the excitement, and it becomes a little bit routine. For me, I always tried to enjoy it, and certainly there were things that would make me enjoy it more, like getting a bullseye with a practice bomb or watching the sun go down before a recovery. But, yeah, I'm afraid to admit it, but I think there probably was a time, although I struggle with an example. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this episode. We've got some other topics we're working on here coming up in the future. I want to tell you that I reached out and was able to get a hold of Commander Fravor. So he's going to come and join the show and talk about his UFO experience back in 2004. Also, for those of you who are asking, and there's a lot of you, I am trying very hard to get someone to come on and talk about flight training from officer candidate or training school all the way through to getting your wings and into the FRS. So working on that. Hopefully we'll get that here in the next couple months. Bear with me. We're doing our best. I want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. That'll do it for this episode. I want to thank you for joining us here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it.
thanks a lot, Chuck. That was really cool. Hey, have you thought about writing a book? Not myself, but the DFC Society has a book out called On Heroic Wings, Stories of the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. And it covers the history of the uh, DFC. They're people from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, post-Vietnam, and a special group like Jim Lovell and some of those. And they're based on oral histories that we've done. We probably have oral histories of about 130 of our members. So some of us have a maybe a four-page part in there. Others have a very short synopsis uh, most of the time. It lists their citation for the DFC, but it, it covers all kinds of people. And uh, that, like I say, a book on me, myself, no, I've never gotten around to that, but uh, my story's in there. <laughs>